Hey everyone, this year the American Craft Spirits Association is celebrating its 10th anniversary. To kick off the celebration, this podcast is part of a special series of conversations with some of ACSA's founders and first board members. Some of these guests will also be appearing at a Founders Forum at ACSA's 10th Anniversary Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show this February 10th in Portland, Oregon. Visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org to learn more. Thanks. I, I think the biggest and most important lesson that I learned that I like to pass on to others is that it is possible to change a situation even if it is at uh, not just at the local level, but at the state level and the federal level, the national level. It is possible to do that. And we've demonstrated it over and over again. Uh, but what's needed is uh, a dedicated approach to it. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page. And today on the program, Ralph Lorenzo. Ralph co-founded Tuttletown Spirits Distillery in 2003 with Brian Lee and his son Gable Lorenzo, who passed away in 2021. Tuttletown was a founding member of ACSA, and Ralph was on ACSA's first board of directors. Some call him a godfather of federal excise tax relief for craft distillers. In 2010, William Grant and Sons bought the Hudson Whiskey brand and eventually acquired the distillery. Ralph recently joined me and Jeff Cialetti for a conversation, and to start, we asked him to take us back to his earliest memories of starting a distillery. Well, uh, my son always described me as a uh, serial entrepreneur, and uh, I had started a variety of businesses over the years. Uh, each of them was an obscure type of business. It wasn't something that, it was just something that was odd. Uh, I did a uh, bicycle touring and adventure vacation business in Maine uh, that I had when he was born. And then uh, from there, I went into the tourism business. And then <clears throat> in New York City, um, I got into the climbing business and uh, rock climbing and climbing gyms, and I built the first climbing gyms in New York and ran them. And uh, I had my own climbing gym on Broadway. And then I moved upstate in order to start up a sort of ranch for rock climbers, who there was a, the place where we live now in Gardner is the, uh, you might say it's the largest climbing destination on the east, in the eastern United States. And I'd been climbing there for many years and, and I wanted to have a place where people could go and camp out. And so I started that and uh, it wasn't well received by my neighboring, uh, by my neighbors. And so I had to come up with another idea. And um, in this case, I called the local uh, zoning officer and I asked him to come over and tell me what I could do on the property that I had, which was on a river, a protected river. And uh, what I could do that, the, that no one could stop me from doing to make a living. And he said uh, that because winery is considered a farm use and farming is a use by right in New York City, State, <clears throat> that I could do that. And I didn't really want to get into winemaking. And so I started, uh, but I looked at it anyway. And I discovered a new license, which had been 
put in place by the state of New York, which reduced the fee for a distillery license from $65,000 down to 1500 for three years. And I thought, that's it. And so my talent was actually spotting potential unique situations that could, that because of their uniqueness would generate sufficient publicity and attention that they would have a leg up and they would really, it would give them a, a kickstart, so to speak. And so I decided to do it. I, I uh, and even though I didn't, you know, even with, with the bicycle touring business and with the climbing gym business, I knew nothing about those businesses. They didn't exist before we started doing them. In Maine, it was the first such operation in Maine. Uh, in New York with the climbing gyms, they were the first climbing gyms. It was when climbing gyms very had their very beginning. So I was instrumental in the organization of that uh, business and sport. I served on a commission, an international commission that was writing, was writing the rule books for competition, World Cup competition climbing. And I was the US delegate. So because of these obscure interests, um, I had a talent for figuring out how to do it. And in the distilling business, because of the changes in New York state law at the time, which at the time no one knew about, this was a, a change that would, had gone right under the radar. And uh, because of that, I felt like if we could get our, we could be the first ones to get this license. That means we the first ones making whiskey in New York or alcohol in New York since prohibition, that would give us a great marketing uh, hook. And so, uh, so it, as far as what, what it was that made it possible for me to do things, it, it was my uh, tendency to be able to find these interesting, obscure businesses and then find a way to make them work. And, and so you find that like, you know, obscure thing in the laws, but then you also then become like, a, a, you know, a lobbyist in a way for, for other uh, rights for distillers. So it was another adventure uh, into a wilderness I had no comprehension about at all, politics and lawmaking. I, I had never been involved with anything like that, that. But the problem for the distillery license that was issued was that you could make the alcohol but unlike wineries and breweries, you couldn't sell it to consumers at the distillery and you couldn't let them taste anything according to New York law. And that eliminated an entire market and an entire method of bringing your goods to market. Uh, and so I really went to Albany to modify the law, not to write a new one and uh, spent three years lobbying. I, the first people I went to for help uh, because we always considered, I always considered them my partner too, uh, this level of distilling as an agricultural undertaking rather than an industrial undertaking. I went to the New York Farm Bureau, figuring they're the ones who most will gain the most from the success of this kind of uh, industry launch. And so um, I went to the Farm Bureau and I explained my position to them and I explained what I wanted to do, which was to link distilling with farmers, because that's where the goods come from. And uh, they definitely, they appreciated that and gave, gave me the lend, the loan of their uh, lobbyist in Albany. Uh, 
And she really shepherded the whole thing with me through, and it took about three years to do. And the upshot was uh, the, the State Liquor Authority didn't want to modify the existing license because it had a lot of, um, it, it would introduce a lot of technical problems which would make it possible for the very big brands to take advantage of that and uh, come in and open up facilities with their brands in it, selling to consumers and competing with the retail market and all of that. So they preferred to introduce an entirely new license. And they, <clears throat> and so we worked together with them and introduced the Farm Distillery Act, which made the undertaking quite literally and technically, as far as the law was concerned, an agricultural undertaking. And it made distilling and uh, making spirits from New York raw agricultural materials an agricultural uh, venture, which changed everything because agriculture rules in New York. I mean, it's the second largest industry in New York. First one is money. <laughs> but the second one is agriculture. And so it, it really um, it, it made a, a dent. And uh, <clears throat> it allowed us, uh, it also allowed the producers great latitude in the way that they could market and sell their goods. And in the beginning, it was just a simple thing, like you could sell it and you could do tastings at your distillery with your goods. And over the next couple of years, we modified that and opened it up so that you could sell any New York farm product at your distillery, which meant you could, if you <clears throat> had a brewer, <clears throat> excuse me, if you had a brewer who was making beer from New York grains and, and had their farm brewery license, you could sell their beer. And if you had a winery that was making from New York uh, grapes, making wine, you could sell their wine. So essentially you could sell anything that was made in New York from an agricultural product. And that, cha that really changed the entire uh, character of the license and of the launching of the industry. And, uh, it and after, I think it was 2008 when that bill passed, finally, when it got signed. And when it got signed, we were still the only operating distillery in New York. And uh, since that passed, we are, there are now 185 distilleries in New York. So it really, it really <laughs> blossomed beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, that's, that's an incredible number now. And, um, you know, obviously having accomplished something that monumental on the state level, at what point did you start to turn your attention nationally and, you know, eventually what became uh, the creation of ACSA? Um, well, <clears throat> it became clear after a little while that the beer and wine folks were paying a substantially lower excise tax uh, than we were, which is fine for the big producers, for the major distilleries. It was built into their system. They had a way of dealing with it. But for the small producer, having that, that large an excise tax bill was very difficult. And so my goal was to get parity with the small brewers and small wineries at, at the national level from the Fed. And so I started, uh, I went to 
um, representative, our representative uh, Maurice Hinchy, and asked him if he would introduce a bill that would reduce our excise tax, uh, comparable to the reduction in excise tax that the wineries and breweries were enjoying. And he did, he introduced that bill. It never got anywhere, but we really didn't expect it to. After the experience in New York, we know that we learned that these things take a long time and you have to be very patient and diligent in your pursuit of changes in law. And so, uh, and then at the same time as that was all happening, the industry itself was beginning to coalesce. Uh, people were, states were passing laws that were <clears throat> introducing smaller license uh, options. And California, Texas, places like that were, they actually were building distilleries there, small distilleries. And they were all very uh, independent, um, uh, independent operators and the true independent entrepreneurial sense, uh, they generally speaking were people who didn't know anything about making alcohol until they started. And um, they all sort of thought that they were alone out there in the world. And so um, we started reaching out and one of the really um, important factors at that time was the fact of the American Distilling Institute, Bill Owens organization. His was the only effort to try to pr promote small distilling. And so we, everybody turned to Bill and his organization, um, unaware at the time and for some time afterwards that it actually was a for-profit privately held company, not an industry association. But it was all it was, it was the only game in town. And Bill staged a variety of, um, of events at various distilleries around the country over a couple of years and drew the attention of a, a lot of people who were either contemplating starting up a distillery or had already started one. We attended all those events and we suddenly realized we were sitting in a room with 10 or 15 other crazy guys trying to do the same thing we were doing and facing the same problems. And so, you know, my, my efforts over the years have included a lot of organizing uh, early on in the uh, climbing industry. I organized the American uh, Sport Climbers Association, which was the association which represents American competition climbers at the international level and at the national level. And so my first thought in this was we, we have to organize. We have to get ourselves together and, and go to the Fed as a unified force. That one person, me, an unknown guy, wouldn't carry much weight on the Hill. But, if I, but because of the fact that this uh, industry was affecting so many states, we had a broader constituency to bring to the Hill. And so we all met at, um, at one of uh, Bill's events, we all met, and we had been trying to negotiate with Bill Owens to buy ADI and turn it nonprofit and turn it into the industry association. We were unable to come to an agreement for a variety of reasons. And so at this meeting, uh, there were I think 15 of us sitting in a room, <clears throat> I even forget where it was, but we all agreed that it was time to start our own organization, which was owned by the people who were members as opposed to a single person who was using it to make a living. And uh, so we started up the ACSA and uh, 
there was there was an, an enormous amount of discussion about the name of the organization. Uh, there were competing businesses with similar names, and so we had to find one that would that would work for everybody. And then we started organizing, and even that uh, organizational effort was affected by the entrepreneurial spirit in that there were uh, factions in the in the industry. And so there was a faction in California that didn't want to organize and, and put their uh, put a, 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 an organization in into a position of responsibility that might affect their business. And there was uh, also an Alaskan group. So the hard part was bringing them all together and uh, explaining that, you know, together we're a lot stronger and a lot more impressive than if we were doing things on our own. And ultimately, everybody saw that and uh, people started coming together and started working together. And, uh, and also at the same time, the cocktail movement was taking off and that supported the whole effort enormously. And also the fact that states, these new uh, wildcat startup distillers were really tapping at the shell of the national alcohol egg, uh, which had not been tapped on for many, many years. And so it drew the attention of the large producers and the uh, and uh, Discus, which was the organization that the large producers had, which of course had a $100,000 buy-in and had only about nine members at the time. Uh, and it was sort of like the... Uh, uh, the international ski organization or the soccer organization in the sense that they were only concerned about their, their businesses and how it affected them. They, were, they weren't concerned and they didn't take the small distiller industry seriously at all. Uh, I had many times gone to Discus meetings and raised the issue about the small distillers who were not members of Discus, but who were proliferating wildly across the country. And they would just brush us off and say, you know, well, you're going to be members of us pretty soon. And we would say, yeah, but, you know, we have similar needs and, and desires, but they're not the same. And the small distillers have a lot more of their own, uh, shall we say, their own blood in it. Because generally speaking, the small distillers were self-funded. They were experimental. They couldn't get bank funding. Uh, they were... It literally breaking into the market as opposed to being welcomed and, and uh, absorbed into the market. And so uh, <clears throat> over time, we, we brought this to Discus often enough that eventually they realized that, well, one of the major, major uh, points of discussion was pointing out to the Discus members and the management that they had uh, legislative power of about five states when they wanted to adjust alcohol law or do something which favored their large business. Whereas the small distillers had distillers in every state. And so we actually, from a legislative point of view, had a much stronger position than the big guys with all their money, because we could go to legislators from every state and bring it to the floor that way. 
And so eventually they, um, they started, Discus actually started a small uh, a craft distilling branch. And a lot of people joined it. I think we joined it too, Tuttletown joined it too, because we wanted a seat at the table. But our real um, allegiance and our real uh, emphasis was on the small distill, on ASCA. And uh, so we decided as a group, uh, the people who were initially in it, there were about 10 of us, uh, decided as a group that we did not want to be a part of Discus. We wanted to be our own organization, member-owned, independent, and so we moved forward in that direction. And it was, and it has paid off. And now when you go to the ACSA annual meeting, there's a major trade show there. I mean, it's not, in the beginning, it was just a couple of tables and some flags and things like that. Now it's a serious trade show. And the event is a serious event. People take it very seriously in the industry. So it has paid off. Do, uh, do you think FET relief uh, and, and the permanence of it um, would be possible without ACSA? Do I think what would be possible? No, uh, the, the permanent FET relief. So the, 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 the federal excise tax reduction just the the fact that that became a thing at all like would, would that have would that have happened without an organization like ACSA no i don't believe so and mainly because in the beginning discus was uh was opposing any changes to the tax law and the main reason was because they didn't want their, their let's say their stated reason <clears throat> was because they didn't want um uh, the law to create a sort of um, uh, to create two levels of uh, industry in the sense that they didn't they didn't want us to bifurcate the industry and they thought that if a special tax consideration was given to the small distillers well why couldn't they get the tax consideration too and they would oppose it unless they were considered. Ultimately, in the negotiations, uh, rather than specify the discount in tax based on the size of your production or the size of your operation, the Fed placed the discount, the, the discount applied to the first 100,000 gallons anyone makes. And that satisfied the big guys because they got a piece of it. And it, it may not have made such dent in their budget, but it had a huge effect on the budgets of all the small producers. I mean, that the for us, the equivalent uh, amount of money uh, would have been enough to hire a couple of people and buy a new still at the time. So it really was a leg up for the industry, <clears throat> but we had to fight every, every inch of the way. And uh, ultimately, the, then ultimately, when we finally got a legislator who was willing to push it forward, we then had to contend with the breweries and the winery organizations that felt that somehow this was a problem for them. And I, and I can't speak to why at this point, but you know, they, did, they had things they wanted. And the omnibus bill that was finally put together had to be composed in a way that satisfied not just all the small distillers 
and the big distillers, but also the wine industry and the brewery industry. And so it became a typical political struggle in the sense that what started out as some, a very simple request ended up bringing in a lot of politics. And, and that's where, you know, we, we always hem and haw and scream about those goddamn lobbyists in Washington. <laughs> but the fact is, if you want to get a, a law changed, you need a lobbyist because they've got the roadmap and they know all of the places along the way to get gas. So, you know, in, in Albany is where I learned that lesson, having access to uh, the woman who helped me up there. So uh, once everybody seemed satisfied with the package, it finally went through, but it took a long, 10 years. So a, a common refrain that we've heard from a lot of people in the industry uh, has been, especially in those early years, uh, and I, I still hear it now actually, but uh, with legislators not even knowing the difference between a distiller, <laughs> a brewer, and a winery, and that was a source of frustration for a lot of people. And you know, and I've been on some recent uh, public policy conferences, and there still seems to be some confusion there. Like, how would you say, uh, from your perspective, like that's improved versus where when you started, or at least when even ten years later when ACSA started? Well, I think that the thing that's that. Um stimulated the improvement was the fact that states started collecting a lot of tax and the Fed started collecting taxes. And suddenly it became a thing. In the beginning, we would sit in legislators' offices down in Washington, DC, and the questions would be, so what do you brew? Or, you know, things like that. I mean, they really did not con uh, understand that we were distillers, we were making alcohol. We were, we were not making wine or beer. That's what most people are used to, were used to at the time. And because there was no such thing as a craft uh, spirits industry in the States at that time. And so we had to educate them. And we had to also drive home the point that this wasn't, the whole industry was not about just alcohol. It was about tourism, agriculture, job creation, tax creation, tax revenue. And once we were able to get that into their heads uh, with the support of the states, which were enjoying all four of those benefits from the industry, which they had never seen before, then they started paying attention. And then they started, you know, we, and we constantly were urging the distillers, get your legislator to your facility. Walk him around, let him see, let him or her see what it is you're doing. Have them meet your employees, you know, and their kids who are almost always hanging around the distillery, you know, make it real for them. And then they'll understand. And it took time. Eventually they did. We had Chuck Schumer visit us a couple of times and uh, he was always a great supporter of, of our operation. And also sort of in the, the early days of forming ACSA, uh, how challenging was it to, you know, convince others to join? Because I'm sure a lot of people were like, well, I'm already a member of ADI, or, you know, like what, what distinguishes you from them? You know, what was sort of the kind of uh, 
acceptance level at that point like talking 2013 when the when the association launched i think that in the beginning abi was the only game in town and so we all gravitated toward it uh, but as the industry became more mature uh, the questions that we were asking and the information we were seeking um, became more technical and it became less about how do I start a distillery and more about how do I make a profit and how do I keep my employees and, and it became much more technical. And so eventually the uh, sort of associations, the ADI and ACSA uh, had two separate paths. We drove home the point that first of all, ACSA is member owned and operated. It's not uh, a private company making a profit for a single individual. So if you went to ADI and asked to see their financials, they didn't have to show them and you wouldn't see them. Whereas with ACSA, we're required to show our financials. And we were required to be responsible to our members who were, who were the industry. And so, Ultimately, ADI turned into the organization you turn to to start up, to figure out how to get into the industry. And once you were industry, you were in the industry and you had your permit and you were starting to deal with the Fed and the state and distributors and local retailers, then you would come to ACSA. And that's really how it uh, bifurcated. And, and now, like as far as uh, you know, discus goes, um now especially now that they're uh getting involved in the craft space uh like how how do you see our organization and discus coexisting and uh how uh can they complement each other well the most important thing of course is uh to deal with the fed in a in a way that presents a uni unified front uh, there are many issues that the small distiller has, which are not of any concern to the large distillers. And it was necessary for membership and management at ACSA to recognize that and to not be afraid to step off in their own direction when necessary. And we made it clear in our discussions with uh, Discus that there will be times when we disagree with you. And we're not going to support what you do in the same way as you're not going to support everything we want. And we just have to learn to live with that and try to work together. And then it, so it seems to have uh, found its own level point. Um, I'm not so involved with Discus anymore or even AACSA since my retirement. Um, but it appears that the industry has reached a sort of stable point. And uh, it may even be verging on uh, oversaturation uh, in some places. But the point is that it has reached a point where both organizations go about their own business and communicate with each other at the same time. So Ralph, I'm curious to hear, what would you say are the biggest lessons you've learned since you started in the distilling business? Um, 
I, I think the biggest and most important lesson that I learned that I like to pass on to others is that it is possible to change a situation, even if it is at uh, not just at the local level, but at the state level and the federal level, the national level. It is possible to do that. And we've demonstrated it over and over again. Uh, but what's needed is uh, a dedicated approach to it. Uh, people have to take uh, have to take a step back and realize there are a lot of players in this game, and they all need to be comfortable with what you're doing. And it takes time. Uh, it took three years to get the Farm Distillery Act passed. It, it got shot down by three governors until the fourth one signed it. It took ten years to get the federal excise tax consideration. And, a, and the effort of so many people. Uh, it, I headed up that effort for first for the beginning. When ACSA started, one of the first things I said is we need to have, we need, when we were talking about committees, my position was we needed to have a legislative action committee, somebody that would go, a group that would focus on the tax situation and formed a committee. Uh, eventually, Nicole Austin joined me as co-chair and then eventually I needed to step away from it because I'd been at it too long. And it needs, you, an effort like that needs to have new management once in a while. You can't have, because it ends up being, you know, one person is leading the charge, but it ends up being their game. I mean, everybody's going to them. And what, you, what needs to happen is that the other people need to bring their influence in, their ideas in, so that it, it's a much more rounded approach. So I stepped away and Mark Schilling took over. And Mark had been a lobbyist, so he knew the game. And uh, it, 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 uh, it was a very successful effort that took a long time to do, but the main thing was that people learned that they could do it, that it was possible. Uh, we heard a lot of people say in the beginning, uh, you can't open a distillery. It's impossible to compete with the big guys. You can't get a law change. It's impossible to go to D.C. and convince the legislators of anything. And you're working against the, the big boys who have all the money in the world. Uh, it's not possible to get your alcohol on the shelf of a high-end bar on the top shelf. All those things were proven false and mainly proven that proven false because someone said, I can do that. And they went after it and didn't listen to the naysayers. And I think that that is a, a, a key element for all of the new distillers when they come in, because I know all my friends and family were saying, he's nuts. You know, when I started doing it, they could not believe I was getting into the most taxed, most heavily taxed, heavily regulated industry in the country uh, and knew nothing about it. You can do things. You can. You just. You, the information's out there, and if you're determined enough, uh, at any level, at the business level, immediately here at home, at the state level, the federal level, the international level, we. You know, we we introduced our whiskey in Paris, in uh, 08. Well, we had it there before 08, but in 08, I went over there and did a tour, and introduced it over there. And uh, my European brand ambassador, my good friend, Tony Venaria, and I made the rounds in Paris and placed our goods on the, some of the most 
high-end bars, restaurants, and, and hotels in Paris. And then we came back to the States and we went into a bar and they said, hey, we don't know you. This, this whiskey's on the bar at the Le Crillon in Paris. And, uh, you know, in places like that. And it got their attention. But it's because we were, I would say, bold and curious and ignorant <laughs> about what was expected or what was thought possible. And we just went ahead. And I think that that was probably the character of most of the small distillers who started up around the same time we did, is they, they, they didn't ignore all the warnings or, or all of the comments people make, but they moved ahead in spite of them. And I think that's the best advice or uh, best advice I could give anyone starting anything, anything, not just a distillery, but any new venture that's, that's an oddball venture. Uh, just the, the naysayers are always going to come down and, and tell you what you can and can't do. And, and you just have to have faith in your own ability. And, uh, and I think the small distillers that were in on it in the very beginning, when, when there was no precedent for it and there was no example we could follow, that's what they did. They were bold and they, they went ahead anyway. And here's where we are. Now we have, I think, there's probably 1,800 distilleries. Is that it across the country? Something like that. And uh, yeah, I think we're up over 2,000, right, Jeff? I'm not. Uh, 20, almost. Uh, well, it should be about 2,700 now. Yeah, 2,700. It's amazing. Yeah. It's and the for us uh, in the industry, it's been incredibly interesting to watch the whole industry be born, mature, and reach adulthood in the last 20 years, just been incredible uh, to see it happen. It's like, like raising a kid, you know, they, they start out with nothing, knowing nothing. And uh, then they're adults and they're paying taxes and, <laughs> and raising other kids. Um, it's been really a rewarding experience very, and worth every bit of the effort. Ralph, you answered the next question that I had and I think that was a great stopping point uh, because the next question was advice for startup distilleries today. Um, but I love the way you talked about just, uh, you know, any business. Um, but if, if there is any other specific advice you have for a startup distillery, uh, we, can, we can work that in here. But I think that was a really good point. The, for the startup distillery, the people who are contemplating starting up a distillery, the best advice I can give is read the law, get your state code, read it, then read it again, because it's un incomprehensible, the first read, and then in most cases, and then read it again, and keep reading it, and then read the federal law. And, but yeah, and that's like crazy complicated and, and enormous, it's, it's a huge volume of material. But the fact is, if you're not familiar with the law, you will trip over your own shoelaces over and over again. And uh, for me, I had a thing about reading law early on. I, I, I liked it and I, I was determined to figure out because everybody told me it's just too complicated to get into this. And it turned out not to be complicated. It turned out to be um, tedious and difficult, the paperwork, but it wasn't complex. And, and you know, someone who's determined if they're reading the law and they understand the purpose of what's being asked of them, they can find their way through the maze. 
Right. Uh, oh, one more thing. The yeah. other thing I always tell people is uh, go to your town hall and meet your legislators in town, your local people, get to know the fire department chief and the fire department, get to know the local police department, make friends with all of them. Tell them what you're going to do. Because the first reaction they have is, what? You're going to be making alcohol? You know, and they see it as a fire hazard and, and has and just it's going to be terrible for the neighborhood. No, you, they, you have to make friends with the local authorities and ex have them understand what it is you're doing and the impact of it. The fact that it's helping the local farmers, the fact that it's drawing tourists to the neighborhood who spend money, the fact that you, you've created jobs. At one point, we had 25 employees. And uh, the fact that it's also generating tax revenues for the state. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Ralph Arenzo for joining us. Ralph says he no longer has any official role with Tuttletown, but he does have a connection with Hudson House, where his son Gable was supposed to begin distilling the day after he passed away. Otherwise, Ralph says he's enjoying retirement and is looking forward to teaching his grandchildren how to rock climb this summer. We'll be back very soon with more conversations with ACSA founding members and early board members. Until then, thanks for listening and cheers.